Hi, and welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today I'm joined by Stephen Harper, longtime resident of Big Sur and longtime teacher at the Esalen Institute, the Tassajara Zen Center, and many other institutions. Steve is a Gestalt practitioner in the tradition of Esalen co-founder Dick Price. And today we speak of Steve's special relationship with Dick, his adventures in wilderness, his thoughts on raising two sons in Big Sur, and his deep history with the Esalen Institute. He showed up on the scene in the late 70s and has been an integral figure here ever since. I'm joined by Kai Harper, Steve's son and my colleague on this episode. So with no further ado, here's our conversation with Stephen Harper. Thank you so much, Steve Harper, for uh, joining us on Voices of Esalen. It's a pleasure to be here. I have a, another interviewer with me today, Kai Harper, uh, your son. And Kai, it would be great if you could start off this interview by kind of introducing yourself and um, talking about your role at Esalen now. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having us tonight. Uh, yeah, so my name is Kai Harper. I'm Stephen's oldest son. I currently work here at Esalen as a farm, garden, and grounds employee. Uh, I have been co-leading and assisting uh, Stephen's workshops for over 10 years now, I realized, since I was 14. Um, yeah, or if you believe certain stories, since since three, was it? You were in the catalog at three years okay. old. <laughs> Yes. In a family hiking workshop. Yeah. So, so you're so, actually in a catalog description, bio. Absolutely. So maybe believe isn't the right word, but uh, definitely since 14, more regularly assisting. So that's kind of my background and connection to Esalen. So yeah, Dad, good to see you. Thanks yeah. for being here tonight. I've heard stories, uh, whether it's in the car or around our dinner table, about Esalen and about your experiences, Esalen, and kind of a unique perspective on... Uh, the people here and the teachers you've had and the experiences you've had. And it's stories that I would really love for other people to hear because I know it's been really invaluable. With that, I would love to hear kind of about your initial arrival to Esalen. What was that like? What was your early experiences at Esalen? And kind of give us a little bit of background and history. Yeah. Thank you. When I'm asked this question, I think I often respond with the response that actually it felt like Esalen came to me first. And that goes speaks back to, I think, our family lineage of my mother, my father, your, your grandmother, grandfather. Um, my mother, um, after getting you know, four kids mainly raised, uh, she went back to school to become a counselor mm-hmm. and started coming to a place called Esalen Institute. And she was taking uh, a lot of bioenergetics workshops, uh, gestalt, uh, probably some encounter, you know, group work, a lot of body work. Um, And then she would find workshop leaders that she liked, that she goes, this is a good workshop leader. And she would bring them to Tucson to lead a workshop out of our living room, out of our house. Mm -hmm. And on those weekends, I did not bring friends home because how do you describe you know some of the scenarios going on especially as a you know a teenager my first drive up the big sur coast um i pulled down you know the road expecting they would absolutely let me in because my mother had taken so many workshops here (laughs) and she knew so many people that were connected to here and i had read all the you know so many books of different people 
that were teaching here at the time or even lived here at the time. And I got turned away with the catalog in hand. Um, turned out that later when I came back, it was Rick Tarnas that was at the gate uh, that turned me away. And that's when he was writing his PhD thesis, which later evolved into other work that he's done. Um, so my early coming here was in the garden and it felt like an incredible, actually blessing. Like I, I lucked out, I felt like. Um, because not only was I getting to take workshops, and I had my work scholar month, which I loved, and I was able to trade body work, and I also got to learn gardening. What year was this, Steve? Yeah, so this uh, was in 78, and uh, so this uh, would make... Uh, this year, 2018, will, will make my 41st year here, but it'll be my 40th year of actually offering workshops mm. here. So there's that kind of, you know, piece of history there of when I showed up. And um, the garden, um, I was given a lot of, you know, free reign to really take charge of things. And uh, it was a need of a lot of work, and I was a young you know, 22-year-old man that was willing to double-dig lots of beds and <laughs> passionate about learning, you know, gardening. And it felt like it was both. You know, I was, I was gardening outside, and I was very clearly gardening inside. At that time at Esalen, as a work scholar, it was very easy to take weekend, week-long workshops uh, in the context of being also in your work scholar month. So there's a lot of teachers uh, accessible, and I really, I really used it uh, uh, to my advantage. You know, I mean, to, from, not to my advantage, but to, for my learning. Were, uh, do any of the um, workshops that you took uh, in your early years do any spring to mind? Well, one of the first I, I took actually was with uh, Michael Murphy and a number of other people that were leading it. I think it was uh, like four different leaders. Yeah. Um, and that had come from, you know, uh, my college days and yeah, high school days, you know, all the different sports I was involved in, which I don't need to tell you all of those, but there were many. And especially uh, my mountaineering days. Um, there was a book that George Leonard had written called uh, The Ultimate Athlete. And of course, I'd read uh, Michael's uh, uh, book, uh, Golf in the Kingdom. And so... Those spoke to me because sports was one of the ways that I had kind of experienced something, you know, out of the ordinary in my own, you know, perception of myself and, you know, external reality. Mm -hmm. And so it made sense to me. So I, that was an early workshop I took. Um, a lot of them were uh, movement and massage oriented, more towards the somatic end of things. I took a massage workshop with actually with uh, Deborah Meadow and uh, Lori uh, at the time. Um, I took um, Mike Spino. He was a runner and a running coach. Uh, Wendy Palmer, George Leonard, Richard Heckler were teaching a lot of Aikido workshops. And also uh, their teacher, Bob Nadeau, was teaching a lot of Aikido workshops. And, and Aikido... Uh, blended very well. They're teaching the principles of Aikido more than the martial art. They were teaching more of the art part uh, that could apply to daily life. 
If you had to try to characterize the Esalen that you stepped into in 1978, 79, 80, what would be some of the kind of the defining characteristics of the culture? Yeah, I'll sidestep for a second. You know, Dick, and I think maybe Dick and Michael, but I know Dick often referred to Esalen as, um, you know, Esalen as a, a Rorschach test, you know. So uh, everybody has its, their own view of what Esalen is or should be, yeah. right? And, and I think uh, that's actually fairly true. You know, everybody that comes here comes with an idea about what Esalen should be. And then as they're here, you know, what they want it to be. And it's all seen through the lens, you know, of the particular person. So obviously, whatever I say here is you know, <laughs> through my lens and through at that time. Um, and I would say the story has changed. You know, as I've grown older and been here more, you know, in length of time, the story of my first arriving here has changed because it has the perspective of, you know, 40 plus years of history. You know, when I first arrived here, the old timers at that time said, oh, you've already missed it. You know, you, you've, you've missed, it was really cool before, but it's different now and you missed it. Yeah. And I believed them. I really thought, oh, I, I missed it. You know, I missed the cool part. Well, I'll take what I can get here, which was actually really rich. Mm-hmm. There was so much available and I really uh, jumped in. Mm. At that time, all of, or most of the administrators of Esalen lived on Esalen grounds or within a mile and a half. Uh, there was a feeling at that time of community in a different way now. There's always community been here. Um, there was a different time where I think it had come to a certain level of maturity, you know, out of the 60s, kind of maybe out of some of its preteen kind of uh, rebellious, you know, stages. Still very much a rebellious thread through there. And yet there was people, uh, couples having their babies here, the gazebo getting, you know, well underground, you know, well kind of grounded and going um, as a young man to be able to go to births. Because at that time, sometimes the births of, of a new child coming in were kind of a uh, semi-community experience. You know, the, the mother might invite other people to come in to witness the birthing of this child. So as a young man, to be able to do that, to be able to witness uh, you know, a baby coming in that was not my own baby and to feel that kind of ownership in a way of like, oh, this too is my child. You know, not directly my child, but I, I too am, am part of this. And then also on the other end, uh, there was people that uh, you know, passed here where I was in the room or nearby when they passed. So there was that context of a feeling of a, of a village in, in some way. And also at that same time, there was this interest in taking the idea of self-responsibility a little larger than just this smaller definition of self. Like how can we be more responsible for all of the parts of our lives? And so Esalen Laundry used to be sent off all the way into town and come all the way back. And so, okay, let's build our own laundry. Let's heat the water, you know, using solar, you know, uh, energy to heat that water, to preheat it before it goes in. Um, this is a time when 
it was looking at how can we use the hot springs water to heat the pool? How can we use it to heat other units? Um, could we put wood stoves in other you know buildings and use that to heat so we're using less energy? This is when the garden idea expanded to the, the farm and uh, Bruce Nee put in a proposal and uh, the two of us were hired to start what I named as Hot Springs Farm and we cleared that acreage out there. Um, and in that, it was very integral. We actually had um, breaks where the office, gate, laundry, um, almost every department had someone come out to help plant the trees that surround the farm. Now we had dug the holes already and had things prepped, but also at different times, like when we put in, there was a big uh, blackberry patch that's no longer there. We had everything prepped and the community came out. You know, people from every department, kitchen, you know, everything. Uh, one or two folks. So the idea was just to have some ownership and relationship to the land. And the gazebo was connected to that. So the gazebo would come out so the kids could get to learn about growing things. And we built a self-composting toilet. So, you know, a lot of people come to Esalen to learn to deal with their shit. Um, this was literally, you know, how do we deal with our, our shit in a way that we can make it useful and turn it back into something we can put on, you know, the non-edibles, you know, to nourish them. So the, it felt like to me there was a early renaissance in um, how can we, not that we are going to, grow all of our own food or that we're going to produce all of our own energy you know we're going to be self-contained it was more how can we be partially engaged in all of the parts of our lives that make up our life so we know what what it means to be alive mm -hmm. and be connected to a place and what that takes to grow food what it takes to raise a child it sounds like the time that you were there in the late 70s early 80s Esalen took kind of an ecological step forward. Uh, I'm curious about like the early days, the early decades of Esalen. Was it as ecologically conscious? I know it was a kind of a countercultural hotspot, and I'm just wondering if you know about their attitude towards things like growing food. The energy, you know, kind of uh, how can we be more responsible for our energy use? I remember that coming in more around 78, 79, 80 in that window. It really wasn't, I, from my knowledge, on the radar really in the in the 60s. It was really more about the, the workshops um, going on. So this is um, just kind of continuing this vein of what the culture was like while you were here. You know, initially you came here as a student uh, and then you became a staff member and would kind of come in and out seasonally. Um, I'm also curious, fast forwarding a little bit, what it, was it like to then raise a child in this community? And, uh, you know, you've raised two children pretty darn well, if I can, if I can make that claim. Um, and you raised them at Esalen to a certain extent. Uh, and so you got to see these lives beginning in this community develop and what it was. And then you had eventually switched into a role where now you were having those experiences as the parent. Yes. So I would love to hear a little bit about what that was like. So again, going back a little further is I did get to work at Gazebo mm -hmm. uh, as a young man. 
And again, what a gift to be able to already engage with, you know, young kids, learn to change diapers and all that well before even the thought of myself having kids was even in the radar. Um, So I worked uh, one day a week for a period of time at the gazebo, learned to be a tree there. I did, one of the things that often they would ask me to do is to take the kids up the canyon. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I take them up the canyon and, you know, get them into more wild areas of Big Sur. And kids love to eat things, especially <laughs> off the land. So I would often show them some edibles that they could eat. Um, so having that kind of as a base, then having, you know, you and then Kess uh, come into the world, really feeling that, like, I just gazebo so I can't think of a better place to raise a kid mm. you know because so much uh, of the philosophy that Janet brought there was really you know it was based in in Gestalt she was very influenced by Fritz Perls and goes back to this concept that Fritz worked very strongly from of organismic self-regulation and kind of trusting that basically kids know pretty well how to be kids right and if anything, it's adults' job to kind of step aside and kind of support and trust that process of kids coming into themselves. And uh, the way a lot of people, you know, have difficulties later on in their lives is because adults came in thinking that they knew better or this is what you should do. This is what you can and can't do. This is a no. This is a yes. Um, that were pretty strong and firm boundaries for gazebo was this, uh, you know, much more open with a very clear container in it. Um, but just even the idea that, the you know, the first month that anybody was there as a teacher, your, your whole first month, you're just asked to be a tree. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of gives the idea, you know, you're supposed to make yourself just almost invisible to the point that the kids didn't even know you were there mm-hmm. unless there was a real need for you to, you know, to somehow step in. And uh, that's often, I think, how the teachers were there. So as a parent, to have that where, you know, you could come home, you know, filthy, (laughs) uh, dirty, having had a really long day of play and there's goats and chickens and, you know, the donkey and, you know, places, trees to climb and things to do and kids to engage with and the tricycles to come flying down the hill into the hay bales that all those experiences, um, you know, built uh, a strong relationship. And I think you probably would say that the people you grow up with at Gazebo, I think those bonds will go all the way for the whole of your life. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So as a parent, to know that my children, you and Cass, could have that as an experience was um, a, a true gift. True gift. Yeah. Well, and I remember from my own experience, this other piece of, you know, we were connected to Gazebo and we went to Gazebo, but just the greater container of Esalen growing up in that, that I remember playing tag throughout the bushes at, you know, eight at night where we're roaming around acreage, you know, acres of property Mm -hmm. um, without fear, really. Um, and without also some parental fear. And I also remember community events and doing Fourths of July and Danny B 
doing the coin drop in the pool and these huge community events. And so there was also the Esalen as the greater container for my upbringing. Um, And so I'm curious what it was like with that piece. Major concerts, you know. (laughs) As a little baby, uh, there was a major concert here and I, it was the big house. There was a gathering for the musicians and uh, Bonnie Raitt and Jackson Brown both held you as a fresh baby there. So you came in with some, you know, rock and roll or whatever you want to call that genre, you know, at an early age uh, there. And then, of course, Baba Olatunji was, you know, was, you know, doing Fourth of July's at that time. So, you know, you grew up with uh, context and also going to the baths. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there was... At that time, too, before a couple would have a baby, there were blessing ways. And a blessing way was this ceremony when the woman was still very pregnant and her husband, and often at the south side of the baths, there would be, you know, flowers floating in the pools and herbal tea. And the two parents would get up on a massage table, sitting side by side with pillows. And, you know, people, the community would come and make literally, you know, worded, or danced uh, blessings for this new child coming in. Mm-hmm. So not only did you have a blessing way and Kes have one, you attended many blessing ways mm-hmm. of people that are now your close friends right. that are still here at Esla now working with you, right. that uh, you were at their blessing way, kind of welcoming them into the world before they came. Yeah, that whole thing. That's beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. There's a big context. Yeah. And then there's a larger context of you and Big Sur. Sure. That, that I think is the larger context that holds Eslon. That's a, probably another yeah. subject. But that also is what you grew up in, is this larger context right. of, of Big Sur and uh, the wildness in which our home is located. Yeah. And, and I actually do have a question going down that. But before we get there, since 4th of July was brought up, one of the things I remember is uh, there were some stilts involved. That <laughs> you had that was before right. you were born, right? Uh, the Esalen, there was an Esalen band, and the Esalen band at times really was quite good. Some very talented musicians, mm-hmm. and uh, the Esalen band would play out on the deck, and then uh, Danny Clark would do this version of Jimi Hendrix's "Star Spangled Banner," you know, Fourth of July, you know. I won't do my rendition of that air guitar wise, <laughs> but one of my uh, you know pieces is I was involved in a lot of circus arts, and in fact, at one time, I had the option to go to Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Clown College. I got accepted, five thousand applicants, fifty positions, wow. and I really didn't. I had an audition, and I really didn't think I would get it, and I just made a commitment to go further with the farm. Mm. And I get this call saying, you're in. <laughs> and I had to make this very tough call. Wow. So anyway, I had this whole interest in circus arts and juggling. I put up uh, the first slack rope. Uh-huh. And it was actually, a, uh, it wasn't a slack line, it was a slack rope. It was a hemp mm. you know, rope. And there's even some pictures in the early catalogs of myself and other staff members walking uh, on the this this slack line, but anyway, one of those things was um, uh, among the juggling and things like that was uh, stilts, mm-hmm. and so one year I came out as Uncle Sam, you know, dressed with red pants and this 
you know, long-tailed jacket that was blue with a top hat like Uncle Sam would wear and probably some type of, you know, kind of very fake-looking cotton beard, you know, as Danny Clark's played the Star Spangled Banner, you know, that uh, Woodstock-style version. And uh, I would come out, you know, onto the deck and people would make way and it was, you know, part of the celebration. And then one year, uh, it was the year they had unveiled the Statue of Liberty because they had redone the Statue of Liberty. So I came out with all these green robes and a lit flaming torch. And I remember partway through this a very thick crowd where I could have gotten knocked over very easily. I had this image of me getting bumped and flailing through the crowd on these stilts, you know, with a torch and lighting my robes on fire and running into the band as they, you know, were playing Star Spangled Banner and everybody thinking it's part of the show. Um, so, like many times uh, at Eslin, I got myself in situations that were unexpected and maybe over my head. Uh, I managed to survive them. Yes. At least I think I survived it. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Well, that's perfect. So, yeah, so circling back then from there, um, you know, we're talking a little bit about the natural container, the big sur, really, mm-hmm. um, that Eslin sits in. Um, and this kind of leads us back into you coming in here and some of your early workshops having to do with hiking and also a bit of your connection with Dick Price. Um, was this wilderness aspect, was going out in nature and having a a sort of communion with nature and the self, if I can use those words, Um, putting them in your mouth. But I have some curiosity around that, circling back to basically hiking and the the outdoors and Dick Price. Yeah. So I came, you know, to Eslin... um, as already spoken about, but when I left undergraduate school, I went to work for a school called the National Outdoor Leadership School, which is probably the premier wilderness education school in the United States. Mm-hmm. I think that's really the case. Um, so I got some really good wilderness training and leading long expeditions. Five week uh, was the shortest I led for quite a while, uh, three weeks in the winter. Um, so there's a lot of time in wilderness. And in that, I saw myself and the participants go through what I saw as remarkable changes. Um, and the leadership, including myself and the leaders I was kind of under, you know, learning from, I don't always feel like they had the skills to deal with the inner side. The, the skills end, absolutely excellent. But the inner side, sometimes when, if someone was maybe crying because they were really touched by joy, you know, the, the leader might be saying, it's okay, it's okay. And really with, you know, patting them on the back. And really what they were saying is, you know, you're making me uncomfortable crying. Would you please stop crying? And I just had a, not only just an intuitive sense, but I'd seen, I'd witnessed other things growing up that there had to be a better way, I felt like, to deal with, to actually support what was going on not to stop that process. Um, Because again, it felt like this very organismic, natural thing arising. Um, So I originally came to Eslin thinking that I was gonna be learning some skills to work with groups. And real 
really quickly, very humbled very quickly, that it was more an issue of me working with myself, me uh, learning about this inner wilderness landscape um, and making those explorations and that the part of being in a leadership role was tossed out the door and even further, much further down the road. It's like, you know, first the work goes on here and then maybe uh, it goes into some type of leadership. Right. So in my college days, it became really clear and, and, and certainly well be- before that, you know, in my preteen and you know teen adolescence angst and all that, nature was a place of solace. Mm-hmm. Uh, in college, though, it really became clear to me that nature was a place for me to learn, and also nature was my teacher. Mm-hmm. So both, not, not just my teacher, but also the church, if you will, or the, the zenda, or you know, the, the place of practice, the environment of, of practice. Uh, so coming to Eslan and to Big Sur, um, to me, Big Sur was not so much about the land, it was really about the meeting of land and sea, that dynamic meeting of, of elements. And it's pretty hard to ignore if you step out into the wilderness of Big Sur, either on the ocean or in the mountains of the San Lucia. They speak pretty loudly. You almost have to be asleep at the wheel to not, you know, have them somehow impact you. And of course, you know, that's shown through so many poets and artists and writers and, you know, people, you know, thinking out of the box, you know, out of the norm of our cultural box, you know, being attracted to Big Sur, you know, before Esalen and throughout Esalen's history. So certainly that, you know, was a big draw for me. the Big Sur Wilderness spoke very clearly and directly uh, to me. And then uh, to the next question of of Dick Price, um, you know, Dick and I met kind of through two ways. One is my interest in Gestalt. And the way my interest in Gestalt kind of really developed was not initially, that's not initially why I came, was, oh, I want to learn Gestalt. It was me doing a session with Dick that was very, very powerful. It was uh, it, probably a two and a half to three hour session with him. He would do open seats uh, for the community. And a lot of people would show up and I, I came and uh, worked on some, you know, kind of issues, I guess you, you could say, worked on some you know, parts of my life where there had been trauma and it uh, was very powerful and his ability to kind of stay present with me through that, I think, uh, awakened my curiosity about Gestalt. And then uh, being here, wanting to go out on a hike, so I would ask people, I want to go on a hike. And people would say, go ask Dick Price or go ask Andy Garan. So I would ask Dick, where's good places to hike? And he would, you know, give me recommendations. But then after a while, he started saying, you know, you want to come with me? Mm -hmm. And so we would walk, you know, together. Mm -hmm. And that relationship then built upon our, I I would say, our two kind of, you know, interests and loves. I became more interested in Gestalt practice and taking practicums with him, going more to the open seats, 
uh, doing my own work in open seat. And then we would go out on hikes. A lot of the hikes, sometimes most of it was in silence. Sometimes we'd get up at two in the morning when it was a full moon. Two in the morning and we'd do a hike and we'd be all the way up to Coast Ridge Road at 4,000 feet. And then coming back down and we'd be arriving back here at eight o'clock when people were just waking up for breakfast. And so Dick liked to walk often at a fast pace and I was in great mountaineering shape and I could keep up with him. And I think it was... I imagine this, you know, I don't know this is the case for Dick, but I think he knew that he didn't need to take care of me. Mm-hmm. And a lot of other people that he that wanted to walk with him, he had to, in some ways, be a caretaker of them, you know, just make sure that they didn't, you know, get lost or they weren't getting overexerted, ex- you know, there was no overexertion, any of that kind of thing. So with, with Dick, you know, I could keep pace with him or probably even... Uh, you know, outpace him if I had really wanted to, but that wasn't what we were hiking about. Mm-hmm. And uh, over time, as I became more familiar with the Gestalt model that he was teaching, Gestalt practice, but very specifically not Gestalt therapy, Gestalt practice, um, we kind of kiddingly called what we did Gestalt and hiking practice mm. because we both knew the form of Gestalt and we both knew the trails very well and felt very comfortable in wilderness. We could be walking along, and I remember one time some process, you know, kind of things came up for me, and it got strong enough uh, emotionally that we just stopped and we sat down on the trail, and he reflected for me, and I kind of did my own exploration. Mm -hmm. And then when it got to a certain point, without any words between us, we just got up and started walking again, continuing the the role of reflector and initiator, Mm -hmm. but and now walking. And me moving in and out of different emotional states as that hike, you know, progressed. So there's a seamlessness piece of going out into wilderness and going into wilderness internally. And because we both had the score, we could kind of, you know, move back and forth. And then as again, as I got more familiar and more perhaps skilled, uh, there was times I reflected for Dick, you know, out on the trail. And then that eventually led to us, um, me, making the suggestion of us offered as a workshop. Mm. So we had a workshop that was called Gestalt and Hiking Practice. And one of the things I'm, two things I'm proud of about that one is I wrote the write-up and I tried to write it in the style that I thought Dick would uh, write it in. And it was the second shortest write-up probably ever in the Esalen catalog. It was two sentences. Mm. It was something like, Gestalt and hiking can both be awareness practices, period. In this workshop, we will do both, period. And then the leaders, the co-leaders were uh, Stephen Harper, Dick Price, and Aurora Price. And I wrote the bio for Aurora Price because Dick had a great sense of, of humor. So Aurora Price uh, was his Samoyed, or Chris and Dick's Samoyed, uh, dog that would hike with us. And so I put her, her in the catalog with us. And her description was something like, I have to read back, but it was something like, uh, Aurora Price has long white fur, four legs, and loves to hike. <laughs> and what was amazing to me is the first night, some people didn't get the joke. Uh, they came wondering where Aurora Price was. <laughs> And uh, where I did accompany us on our on our hikes, not on the Gestalt, you know, the 
the the in uh, room parts of the workshop. She didn't come in the room on that part, but uh, she did accompany us on our hikes. So I think one of my claims to fame, if I wanted to own one, would be I'm the only living Esalen leader that led with an animal in the Esalen catalog. Now, there's been lots of animals that have led at work at Esalen, but I mean a, 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 a non-human animal. Right. I'm curious. It sounds like there's a, there was a lot of common ground between you and Dick and and. Yet there, I assume there was about 20 or 25 years that, that separated you in age. Is, is that right? That's right. Would you say it was more kind of like a brotherly uh, back and forth, or was there like a father-son element to it at all? It was an evolving, it was an evolving relationship. Uh, so Dick did not like people putting him up on a pedestal. And in fact, I think, the, I'm pretty certain of this, the last workshop that he had his name listed in the catalog for was a Gestalt and Hiking workshop that he died before that one came around. But we had done a number before that. Um, with the Gestalt workshops, he often just had Chris's name in there and he would show up for them to do parts of them. But he almost liked to remove himself from that. And even when I asked him about you know, writing a book at, the, at one point. I think that might have changed later in his life, but earlier on, like, why haven't you written a book? And he said, I, I have no interest in writing a book. You know, it'll, it'll hold me, almost like it would hold him to some kind of, you know, position. And um, so to, to come to your question about father-son, I wouldn't say father-son. Um, I don't think we would have become friends if I had was holding him in the role of a father figure. Now, he was a mentor to me. Mm. Now, he would maybe un- be uncomfortable with me saying that. If I saw you're my mentor, he may have backpedaled a little bit. I don't know about that. Um, I imagine that was the case. So uh, he very clearly, even in his work, you know, initiator, reflector, it's this meeting of know of equals doing exploration and you know that was at least in the open seat that's you know how it works and honestly early on he was a mentor and whenever I would ask him you know some question about something that I was really struggling with you know he would do the classic gestalt movie so I'll put Dick on the pillow he would put a pillow out and say speak to Dick become Dick you know he wouldn't give me an answer uh, that was from him. Mm-hmm. As our relationship evolved, I knew that something was beginning to shift and more towards the friendship level. Mm-hmm. When I asked him, a, you know, a question I was really struggling with, and he he gave me an answer. Mm-hmm. He did frame it. He goes, "Well, now I'm stepping out of the role of being reflector, and this is me, just Dick Price as your friend." And here's what I think. Mm. And I think he knew by that time that I wasn't going to take what he said, hook, line, and sinker. Mm. He wanted to know that I was going to be self-responsible. I could hear his thoughts and, and then take them and you know, use what was useful mm. of that. It, it, it would seem to me that it would be a difficult role to, to be Dick Price on at living at Esalen. And I know he lived at Esalen for most of the time that he was here and starting in 62 as co-founder. And I think he passed in the mid-80s. Is that right? 85, uh, November 25th of 85. 
how do you think that he was able to deal with the pressures of being one of the decision makers and being the locus of there had to have been criticism and controversy during the time that he was uh, that he was here and staying here? Absolutely, absolutely, and and that's one of the things that I w- wouldn't ever want people to think that Eslin had some perfect moment, a perfect history. Um, Eslin has always had some, you know parts that, you know, it's working out some grist for the mill there. That That's, as far as I know, during my experience and previous, that's just been part of the the beast of, of Eslin. Um, I think one of the ways that Dick worked with it is nature, is wilderness. He daily uh, walked for a period of time. Um, I would say most of the time I knew him at least once a week, he would go out at least once a week. And that was one way. Uh, he clearly continued to do his own work. Um, he was a, a continual student. And I think I might have mentioned this before, when uh, people would come to Dick saying, I want to learn to be a facilitator. The first thing he would tell people is, do your own work. Do your own work, you know, get in the initiator seat, do your own work. And uh, he himself did. And mainly it was Chris would sit with him in that, at least during the days I knew him. But before that, he went off and did lots of things with other teachers. You know, there was a period of time he went off to New York with Oscar Chazio, Arika. Uh, there was a time he went to India, you know, to see what Bhagwan Sri Rajanish was up to. Um, so, you know, he, he can, was a continual student. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so I'll, I'll come back to your, your question, uh, Sam, about, um, how Dick dealt with it. There was times he was very, very frustrated, <laughs> you know, really frustrated. And, you know, even a period where he, he went up to, uh, Marin to see what it was like to just step out of Esalen for a little bit and what that felt like, um, so I don't want to make it sound like, you know, just hiking and gestalt and him sure. being a student, you know, saved him. There was times that he really was frustrated with how to guide this big ship that you make a change and maybe the ship has so much momentum it just keeps going in, in the direction that you're not so interested in. Mm-hmm. And I believe that was the case for Michael and Dick at times. It was, you know, Heslin was a beast of its own mm-hmm. and had its own direction that was only partially in either of their control. Um, they certainly had influence, but I think in a way it had a life of its own and so many synchronicity, you know, so many events that just came out of nowhere, uh, apparently, um, that, that uh, you know, seemed like they were synchronicity showing itself. Uh, th- there's a story that I've heard before that really struck me um, that I was curious around how Dick Price showed up in community like uh, and where you actually went late at night and d- would have a process with him and Chris and the way he showed up. For uh, you. Yeah, so you know, there, there was a way that um, he held a larger space uh, for somebody in suffering than anybody I had met previously, met during that time, and maybe have met since. Mm-hmm. His capacity to hold presence and open space uh, full of equanimity mm-hmm. for a person in deep suffering. Almost the deeper they were in suffering, 
the bigger he got. Mm. Um, quite, quite remarkable. And so there were a number of times in the Aslan community where somebody actually went into uh, a psychotic episode or would be named that classically. And he set up uh, for those people where the situation was right. Um, and there was many conditions, for, you know, kind of for that. But he set up uh, 24-hour sitters for those people. And it was the idea that, you know, trusting this process, this, this break, quote-unquote, was actually something uh, of the organism trying to heal itself. Mm-hmm. And so there'd be 24-hour sitting. And our job when we came in to sit for our four-hour shift uh, was to just be present with the person, not to give them any advice, no coercion, no analysis, just to be present, protect them from any uh, physical harm, uh, mm-hmm. and you know, hold space. And one of the remarkable things is I remember sitting with a woman that was in quite a psychotic episode, and I walked into the room trying to be like I was, you know, completely comfortable with the state she was in. And of course, it's like having Velcro all over me. And she, <laughs> she just like grabbed right onto it and was pushing my buttons. And one of the remarkable things about some people when they're in a psychotic episode is they know almost exactly where your buttons are and the most sensitive ones. Mm-hmm. And it can be you know, like sitting with uh, a really tough teacher because they'll go right for the most sensitive ones. Wow. You know, just like that. And so, anyway, watching this woman, you know, pushing these buttons, and of course, the more I tried to pretend like I was unimpacted by him, it was more like she just gave her more to grab onto. Mm-hmm. And her quote-unquote symptoms, you know, became larger. Now, as the time went on, I did kind of settle and kind of come back into myself and get more comfortable. But what was a remarkable thing is then Dick came into the room to spell me for, you know, his four hours. He came in the room and sat down. And her behavior normalized. What we would call, again, quote-unquote, normalized. It was almost, he came in there with no agenda, no fear, and this big field of equanimity. There was no Velcro for her to stick to. Mm. And she kind of just shifted. And it was just like, oh, this is very interesting because this is not about what I say or do in the reflector's role if I'm trying to help somebody. It's much more about how I be than what I do. Mm-hmm. And it was really, at first it was almost like, you know, magic. It seemed like, like, whoa, you know, how can that go on? And I witnessed that more than one time where, you know, Dick did not have fear. He had seen territory much more extreme than what that person was in. And he, if anything, he was genuinely curious about the state mm-hmm. to be curious with them. Let's be curious about this. And, and uh, what a gift. Some people came because it was a, somebody close to Dick and they were having a, uh, someone they knew was having an early episode and they were you know, brought here to give that space and Dick uh, was set up people and there was trainings given for the people that were sitting. Mm-hmm. And the training was basically, don't do anything, just be. Mm-hmm. And uh, then the, there was also an episode, there was episodes where people, uh, while they were here, had a, a break uh, why that was initiated, I don't know. But I do remember one where there was a woman in the 
kitchen. She was working as a work scholar. And she was getting further and further kind of out there from what we would call normal behavior. And she really one day went over, you know, kind of the edge and was uh, staying in the kitchen and, and telling everybody to back away from her. And I came into the gar- from the garden, you know, cause, uh, with lettuce that I'd washed and right. to, to put in the walk-in. And uh, Brian Like was there and he sees me walk in. He goes, go get Dick. <laughs> and I remember running over to the little house as fast as I could to, to get Dick. And, you know, Dick came over and he just, you know, came into the field very quietly and, and you know, entered into some engagement with her and other people backed away and he walked off with her, you know, and they, they did, we did set up a, a thing for two weeks of, you know, people sitting with her. Wow. And there, there were a number of other situations in that case, uh, the family uh, of this woman got uncomfortable with the length of time and and inter, you know intervened. Uh, but there are other cases where I watched people go through a full you know psychotic episode, and to point of, in the middle of it, they they were twenty four hours. They were not sleeping, or at least twenty three hours and a half, maybe half an hour sleep, just continually going, no filter. No filter. Whatever thought was coming into their their mind was just spilling out, and just going and going and going. And uh, so, from that extreme to watching them come down the other side, and then where they were kind of brought back into the community, and you see them in the lodge having a meal, and then back in, and, and some of these people, you know, growing into I would say actually a healthier person then they went into the break with. And the idea with that was that, you know, we're not stopping the process. And often, you know, in the the model that, you know, Dick had been treated in, the model that Dick was interested in finding other ways was, you know, what what if we make this assumption as other cultures did that maybe this is some type of spiritual emergence. It's not a pathology. Mm -hmm. It's a spiritual emergence. How do we support it and be with it, that this is the organism's way of actually coming to more wholeness. So, we, yeah, thank you. So we've heard a lot about, you know, the community and your relationship with it and a good chunk about Dick Price. And a piece that uh, th- that I'm curious about is kind of the different hats that you've worn at Esalen over the years. I mean, I've, I've heard plenty of stories about the different ways you've inhabited your roles here. So as a student first, and then continuing on from there. So I was very lucky, I think. I, you know, I got to be in the garden as a work scholar, and then I was invited to be a work scholar too, which that program had just started. It's now called the Extended Student Program, mm-hmm. and that was actually a name change that I made later <laughs> in, the, in the 90s when I was invited to be more involved in that role. But I was only in a staff position of some sort in starting the farm and then, uh, you know, being a supervisor of the farm. And then my main role has been, uh, you know, as a workshop leader. And I've gotten to mix it up with lots of leaders. Mm-hmm. I think I was young enough and bold enough and naive enough to go up to teachers that were really teachers of mine and say, would you like to co-lead, you know, a workshop mm-hmm. with me? And they, to my surprise, more often than not, said yes. 
So I, I've gotten to co-lead with quite a few. I, at one point, um, for an interview with Stacy, I, I counted up just in my mind uh, forty over forty people that I know I've co-led in. Their name is also in the catalog, you know, with me. Mm-hmm. And then there's a number of people I've co-led with where I've either invited them into my workshop, they just weren't listed in the catalog, or vice versa. Uh, you know, a, a leader that invited me to do part of their programming in there. So this mixing it up of, of um, traditions is really fun for me because I think everything goes with wilderness or with wild nature. Right. And these traditions, all of them, which are quite broad, enhance the experience of how we engage with wilderness and we engage with external and internal wilderness. Mm -hmm. So roles at Esalen um, uh, primarily has been as a workshop leader. I was invited to uh, kind of give some more structure to the extended student program. I was given quite a nice budget and uh, got the visiting teacher program really rolling. Mm-hmm. So there was really clear uh, teachers coming in. It was really fun. I would have these big staff meetings and say, who would you like me to invite? Mm-hmm. And I would get these long list of names. I would just cold, cold call people and say, would you like to come to Esalen? I can offer you a place to stay. I have this much money I can offer you. And you'll have a lot of plenty of time to write. You know, so like, for example, I had Joan Baez come into the little house. And she sat on the uh, right there at the fireplace, and she played a concert for 22 staff members. And we could request things. Like I said, would you do your Bob Dylan impression? You know, because she does this dead-on Bob Dylan impression. Um, so, you know, from her to, uh, you know, just a whole number of features. Like I, I cold called Allen Ginsberg. You know, and and had an hour and a half long conversation with Alan Ginsberg because he wanted to get all caught up with Esalen, and he was, oh yeah, I want to come. It, it, he didn't end up coming. He was actually getting near the end of his life, but he was very excited. And um, what a gift to be able to you know, have this conversation with with Alan Ginsberg. Um, so it was really fun to just you know call people up. And a lot of the teachers they're now visiting teachers still at Esalen are ones that I initially invited back in, you know, 95 mm-hmm. was when that was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, I was invited to uh, facilitate for Esalen uh, a collaborative uh, decision-making process when Esalen needed to cut 9% of its budget across the board. And the leadership at that time wanted to see if they could do it in a collaborative manner. Mm-hmm. And so they hired me as the facilitator to come in and uh, facilitate uh, a, a truly collaborative effort to, you know, how do we shave 9% off and do it in a way that everybody can say yes to. Wow. And I, to my knowledge, it's the only successful attempt at that. <laughs> um, maybe there have been others, but, you know, it followed a very clear map of, of the process and it came out of uh, work that I've been doing on the side, outside of Esalen, working with organizations um, and with a, a very different mentor that specifically was facilitating collaborative decision-making in very difficult situations. After 40 years at Esalen, what is it that keeps you in connection with this center? What would you say is, um, is it the that you care for uh, the 
people who've never been here hoping that they get the chance to experience it? Or is it that you treasure the a kind of a counterculture giving being given the the space to to breathe or is it that you love having your son work <laughs> at at a place you believe in yeah the, the current filter that i kind of run that question through cuz it's changed over time understandably i would i would hope it would change over time um the relationship the current one I kind of ask myself when each year comes around and it's time to, you know, put in my wish list of what programs I'd like to offer at Esalen is the programs I'm offering, are they serving the people that are coming? Are they somehow, you know, serving them? And then are the people, maybe this is a selfish one, but I want it to be authentic, is are the people that are coming, are they people that I want to be? working with are they really you know jumping into the experiences that i'm offering up mm. and you know participating and then uh, another question is are, are is somehow it, from the experience the whole of it are these people impacted in some way where it goes outside of Esalen and ripples on out so that they step out into the world and not they become evangelical about Esalen, mm-hmm. but more in their being, that they've changed in some way in how they be that has this ripple effect. And maybe people get curious, like, oh, you seem different. What's gone on? Um, so as long as I that can be answered as a yes, that I feel like who's coming are people that I'm really curious and wanting to be working with, that those people are getting something from what I and Big Sur have to offer. And then what, whatever that is, however they're touched, that, that goes out and ripples out into the world. If I can keep saying yes to those three, um, I can say yes to yes, I like to keep teaching here. Mm-hmm. The last time we talked, um, you told the story about Jenny and the Nine, which I thought would be kind of um, mm-hmm. interesting to repeat if you have the time. Sure. I think both, as I mentioned before, both uh, Mike and Dick w- have been frustrated with different directions Esalen has gone. And sometimes both frustrated at the same time and not knowing how to you know, steer it back in the course that they were more interested in. And... Um, I think, you know, after making a certain amount of experiments, you know, Dick got to a place was like, why not just play? You know, let's just let's just play, you know? Why this the whole thing's experiment anyway. Let's just, you know, make it bigger. And he came across uh Jenny and the Nine. Jenny O'Connor was this uh channel that would channel through automatic writing. Uh and her story was she was channeling as I recall, nine entities from Sirius, the, the star Sirius. So I'm saying this seriously. <laughs> um, and so she would channel. And I think that uh, he had an early experience actually with her that was very authentic and genuine where she told him stuff about previous experiences that he had had that he, no one else knew about. Mm. So in that moment, for whatever, however that goes on, she tapped into some information and even some suggestions about how he might work with some of these things. 
um, that, to his knowledge, no one else was aware of. So she felt he felt like, oh, she's tapped into something here. And so he invited her to come and be at Esalen in residence. And there was often a place for different teachers to come and be here in residence, which was wonderful. And so anyway, so Jenny was the person in residence. And at some point, he decided to start letting her make, or not her, the nine, make decisions about, about things. And this, of course, you know, created its own form of chaos. <laughs> and a lot of people, including me, didn't quite understand this one. Like, you know, I was like, okay, I'll give you this one, Dick, because I have so much respect for you and you put so much into the place. And I really don't quite understand how, you know, you're letting this, you know, entity make decisions about, you know, the direction of the place. Um, but at the same time, it was kind of, you know, like I said, a big experiment. Kind of like, well, okay, I don't get this, but let's see where it heads. So anyway, um, there were people that were let go and were put in positions of power, of, you know, administrative decision-making based on the nine. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I had the farm had just recently gotten started, and uh, they had a whole session where she channeled her, you know, for the garden farm and grounds, all of us together. We were up in one of the Rolf units, and I remember sitting there, and she's channeling, and she gets to me, and she goes, Stephen actually should not be running the farm or not be involved with the farm. And and I went into immediate panic, like I've just lost my position at the farm and I'll be kicked out of here and, you know, what will I do? And I couldn't believe it. But then she proceeded to go, what he should be doing is Stephen should be director of the Esalen Sports Center. And this complex should be built over by gazebo and we should be inviting the top people in sports and sports as Western yoga. And Stephen should be the director of that. And I'm going, yes, <laughs> sounds great to me. And there actually had been an Esalen Sports Center, you know, up at the San Francisco Esalen. And again, one of the things that drew me to Esalen was that. So I was like, yeah, I'll take that position. But that one never came to be. Um, I remained in the farm until I decided it was time for me to kind of uh, move on from the farm. Yeah. Yeah, the two times that I was on staff, the farm was a full-time position. I made the choice. I got to a point where I felt, okay, it's time for me to move on, because I had seen what I thought when I first came to us. A lot of people that were on staff that kind of went on, to my judgment, right or wrong, went on cruise control and weren't really taking advantage of the place. And I got to a place where it was okay. It's time for me to mm-hmm. to move on mm-hmm. from the farm. I've done what I can do here. I've learned some really good things. How many years did you do it? The farm was about, you know, close to two years. Uh-huh. And then it was time. And then I was asked to take on a part-time position. That was a position in 95 of, you know, kind of really designing a program for the extended students. Because there really was no program. It was just like, do whatever you want during the nine months. And then it became 12 months. And that's when, you know, we put advisors in place, there was a welcoming thing. I used to do regular dinners that were just for the extended students. There was a welcoming party and, a, and, a, and actually a party also, uh, not a party, but, you know, a celebration for them going out into the world. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a workbook. I called it the Extended Student Work Workbook and Playbook. 
and it had you know you know th- things to work with your advisor. So there really was some programming for the extended students that so wasn't just this kind of plopped into the middle of you know this thing. That was a part-time job. Once I got up and running, and to make bigger changes, we would have needed to make changes in the Work Scholar program. Um, and uh, it got to a point where there were, it was clear no more changes were going to be made. And it was just now operational. And at that point, it was like, okay, it's time for me to step out. Someone else can run it and operate it and oversee it. The interesting part for me was developing it and, and kind of co-creating with the community and the extended students. So I made this joke before about how it would feel for your, your kid to be doing what you do. But I, I'm actually curious, what, what is it like for you to have, have Kai here and see him kind of working at Esalen and developing his, his, his mm-hmm. space here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what can I say? I am, I'm very proud of both of my sons. Um, by how they've chosen to show up in life. And I've been very, I think, uh, careful, as careful as I can as a parent, to, like, for example, you know, not take them on these long wilderness journeys because that was my passion. You know, because that's the quickest way to turn them off of wilderness is to force them on some long <laughs> wilderness hikes that I'm really interested in, and they're not really. So I really tried to just do just the right amount of introduction, but not to the place of pushing. And the same with with Eslan. Um, you know, invitation is something you want to be a part of. If not, that's fine. You don't need to be. If you'd like to, you know, great. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a way, uh, it was a surprise to me. We were doing family workshops where it wasn't so much of a choice. I would ask the kids, you know, at very young ages, do you want to do this family workshop next year? Well, at that age, it was hard to, for them to really know what next year even meant, right? So they'd say yes, and we do a family workshop when they were quite young. Um, and so they had that you know, experience where they said yes to it. But I stopped at one point when it became a place where I felt like it was forced. Mm-hmm. You know, where um, actually, if I can tell a story on Kai, where I would present something to the group Right. And, you know, he's there as one of the leaders of, you know, on the apparent level because he's listed in the catalog there. And I would present an exercise that we could do as, a, as families together. And I would finish it up and Kai would go, oh, no. And he'd roll his eyes. And, this again? And, like, and I just go, oh, dear. You know, because all the kids are watching yeah. Kai and they're reading off of him. And if Kai's going, oh, this... And so I was like, in between sessions, I would try to have a real clear conversation with Kai and his younger brother, Cass, and say, look, you know, in this, I really need your support for this to work. So even if it's not something you want to do, you know, if you can at least find some way to be neutral, that would help support me in my role. Mm-hmm. And so we get out there on the trail and I would suggest something and Kai, oh! <laughs> <laughs> and so at that point I decided, okay, Next year we're not we're not doing the family workshop because that's not the role I wanted with Kai or Kess. Yeah. It, it was not the role. Very clear. And it, the ironic part is we got to the next year and Kai came to me and goes, Dad, how come we're not doing the family workshop? <laughs> <laughs> he had no recollection 
of, you know, that like, oh. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I really drew back. And then um, at 14, Kai came to me to my surprise and said, Dad, I want to assist you on one of my work, on one of your workshops. Like, really? Are you sure? And this is what the job description looks like. Here's what it looks like. Because by the time I was, I was more clear about how to be clear. Mm-hmm. So here's what I ask of my assistants. You know, can you do this? And yeah, I think I can do that. Yeah. And uh, from then on, he has, and I've been very clear, uh, even at times when I kind of really needed him to be there, or I needed an assistant, put it that way. Mm-hmm. It was really clear, like, this is your choice. Do you want to be here? So I really do feel like uh, Kai has chosen of his own accord to be at Eslin, mm-hmm. not by me saying this would be a good idea. Sure. Um, and I've also really been very careful about not uh, altering Kai's experience by saying, well, in my day, uh-huh. they did this and this and this and this and this and this and this. And you missed the best part (laughs) because that would undermine the experience that Kai's creating for himself Mm -hmm. with you as part of the community and this larger community that should be and is different than the experience I had. So, uh, you know, trying to stay out of that so there's no comparing. So that Kai can have his authentic original experience. I had my, and I'm still having my authentic original experience but for Kai to have his own and for me not to be you know in that and so I I hope I'm I'm doing that oh yes very successfully and even to the point where I've in our conversations been like dad it's it's okay to visit (laughs) (laughs) really (laughs) it's okay to come see me Um, unprompted uh, which is a wonderful dialogue in our relationship and and has been yeah um and yeah and it was like when i was 14 i got really clear i wanted to be a part of it and that's when i stepped back into that assistant role and we've done family workshops since and yeah. other ones as well and the one i'm really proud of and of course I'll tear up here a little bit was you know our fathers and sons workshop done on father's day because both your birthday falls on father's day mm-hmm. and your brother's birthday falls on father's day every mm-hmm. seven years it cycles around yeah. and then my father was coming so we had three generations of my father kenneth your grandfather myself and then you know you two mm-hmm. um leading these fathers and sons workshops on father's day with just fathers and sons in the room yeah. uh some of the most powerful weekends i've ever done Steve thank you so much for for doing this this was a pleasure yeah and a pleasure for me and thank you for the work of doing it and uh, you know a vehicle or a venue for voices of different people at Eslin that make up the Rorschach of Eslin the inkblot of Eslin uh, you know come and give voice and let that voice go out into the larger world in ones and zeros right Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Geraldine Hess, Lori Putnam, Shannon Hudson, and Ian Golden. Our music is by Nico Holloman. 
If you'd like to hear more episodes, please find us on iTunes. And if you like what you're hearing, take a second to rate us and write a review. You can also find all of our episodes at esalen.org. That's E-S-A-L-E-N.org. Until next time, be well.